In today's episode of Trek in Time, we're going to be talking about when to stand back and when to jump in. That's right, we're talking about Enterprise, Season 4, Episode 11, The Observer Effect. Welcome to Trek in Time, where we're watching every episode of Star Trek in chronological order, and we're putting it into context at the time of original broadcasting. So currently we're talking about Enterprise, and we're talking about 2005. And who are we? Well, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I've written some sci-fi. I've written some stuff for kids. And with me is my brother, Matt. He is the, the Matt Farrell of Undecided with Matt Farrell, <laughs> which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a good weekend. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. I'm looking forward to this conversation we're about to have. But before we get into talking about this episode, we have some comments from a previous one. Matt, what do you have for us? Yeah, from episode 84, Daedalus, we had one from Technophile who said, might have to start having 90-minute podcasts and cover three episodes at a time, <laughs> which AJ Chan responded, or maybe two episodes at a time. And the reason I put these in, Sean, was I like having public discussions with you before I've even talked to you about what we're about to talk about. Um, <laughs> let me just spring it on you. But I had just, the reason I put these in here was I had literally just the other day said this to my wife as we were watching these. If there's episodes that are clearly like two-parters or three-parters, maybe we start watching those as a group and doing it as a single episode, and that would help us to accelerate <laughs> the pace we're getting through the show. There is a good case for that, and yeah. interesting to bring that up, considering we're on the verge of a... Leaving this series. <laughs> we're on the verge of a multi-story arc coming up yep. after this episode, so it is something yeah. for us to think about. The only reason I have pushback against that is because yep. there are series where that would become impossible. Oh, yeah, you, we, <laughs> like the newest series, we wouldn't be able to do that because it's just one continuous storyline. Yeah. But like for like, I'm thinking more of the, the ones like the original series or Next Generation, like when there's the, the two part of the worlds, Borg. Part one yeah, and two. We, yeah. do, we do those two together as instead of separate. It's like we could, there's like little pockets where we could do that and it might work and make sense. Uh, but yeah, we wouldn't be able to do it for <laughs> every show. Yeah. Because <laughs> it would be one episode for an entire series. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about all of Discovery. <laughs> the other comments on the same episode one was from palego 69 who said whoa just realized how much data storage the transporter buffers have they hold the placement of trillions of particles where the momentum and direction that's just for one person now think six people at once like next generation now go beyond that to holding the transporter trace of everyone that has ever used the transporter room that has to be thousands of terabytes if not millions and then Sul Hin, I hope I didn't butcher your name, responded to Pelgo saying, this is so key when thinking about the science of Trek, transporters and holodeck kind of break everything. So you need to leave them out when considering the plot of any episode when they aren't integral to the plot. And then it's difficult for the writers to be consistent within that context. Yeah. And the, I like the, this discussion because it's like, there's an element of science fiction that becomes fantasy, yeah. like time travel is fantasy. Uh, transporters really is fantasy at this point. And you have to kind of like disconnect your logic brain <laughs> yeah. and put it to the side because that, that was that famous quote about like uh, the science that's so advanced feels like magic. It's like, yeah. that's kind of what this is. It's magical yeah. thinking. and You kind of have to disconnect from it a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's very true. And it is typically we, we are accustomed to seeing that line when we see something on the scale of 
like um, I'm thinking of a show like Foundation or something like that, yeah. where we're seeing levels of technology that break so many laws that we understand uh, about the physical world. And we kind of take it for granted that it's a, a fantasy element, but it still feels rooted in a science where as Star Trek feels so rooted in a science that when you start to speculate about, well, what element of this is actually doable, mm -hmm. you kind of trip over that. Yep. And having said that, the idea of storage buffers being as large as Pale Ghost just pointed out, I do believe that we will get there. There will be storage yeah. medium that gets that big. And do I think that'll be my lifetime? No, but I do believe yeah. the science of that is doable. Um, yeah. So it, but it does run right into that layer of believability. And mm -hmm. as you mentioned, the, our ability as a viewer to say, well, I'm going to just know when I just have to let go. And that's yeah. part of the fun of Star Trek is that it's very good at helping us let go because when yeah. it's well-written and it's well done, it gets to the heart of the story, which is about the hearts of the characters more than, well, let's figure out the science here. Right. Having said that, we're going to be talking about an episode that has a lot of sciencey elements to it that I absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. So Matt, to get into this episode, let's talk a little bit about the observer effect. And that sound in the background is, of course, the read alert, which means it's time for Matt to tackle the Wikipedia description. Matt, it's a short one this week. I don't think you'll have much Thank trouble. God. Okay. Set in the 22nd century, the series follows the adventures of the first Starfleet starship, Enterprise, registration NX-01. This episode sees alien entities test the Enterprise crew by observing their reactions to a deadly silicon-based infection. Actual first contact with these aliens, the Organians, Organians? Yep. Can't remember how they pronounced it. Organians. Organians. Uh, would occur about a century later during the events of the original series Star Trek episode, Errand of Mercy. That's right. It's Star Trek Enterprise, episode number 11 from season four, directed by Mike Vajar. We've seen him multiple times, written by Judith Reeves Stevens and Garfield Reeves Stevens. We've seen them multiple times. The original air date was January 21st, 2005. And what was the world like at that time? Well, last week, I told everybody that we were done saying over and over, that the song over and over was the song that Matt was listening to over and over, but I was wrong. It had one more week in it. It oh, just Sean. squeaked in Matt. And yes, over and over Nelly featuring Tim McGraw was the number one song. And this is legitimately for the last time. So you will so no longer hear me say over and over, over and over. <laughs> and in the movies, Matt, Coach Carter was the number one movie, $24 million. Quick, tell me what Coach Carter's plot was about. I have no idea. That's right, Matt. The it's the 2005 all. American biographical teen sports drama film starring Samuel L. Jackson, directed by Thomas Carter, no relation. The film is based on the true story of Richmond High School's basketball coach, Ken Carter, who made headlines in 1999 for suspending his undefeated high school basketball team due to poor academic results. I feel like I slipped into an alternate reality, Sean. I do not remember this movie at all. <laughs> oh 
my God. I, I know what you're speaking of. I felt the same way as I looked at the poster and I was just like, oh yeah, but no recollection of it until it suddenly was in front of my face. And on television, how was Enterprise doing against the competition? As we've mentioned, every time we talk about this show in season four, it had moved to Friday nights. And here is the strange holding pattern for Enterprise where its viewership stays right around 3 million. Doesn't gain, doesn't lose. This is a low point for the show this week, 2.8 million people. So it's a little bit lower than its average. And it was up against shows like Eight Simple Rules and Complete Savages on ABC, Joan of Arcadia on CBS, The Bernie Mac Show in a double billing on Fox. NBC's Dateline was getting 11 million viewers. And on the WB, What I Like About You and Grinded for Life were both getting either the same or a little bit more than Enterprise. So not a good mm -hmm. sign. And in the news, some news stories right around this time on January 20th. George W. Bush was re-inaugurated for his second term as president of the United States. The most intense solar particle event in recorded history had been observed as particles from the sun exploded from the surface. In just a couple of days from the broadcasting date, Johnny Carson would pass. And in a bit of sad news, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was reaching powder keg heights, the Palestinian Authority redeployed paramilitary police in Gaza for the first time since the outbreak of the Intifada and Hamas published a document in which it recognized the 1967 borders. Tensions there would remain high. So for this episode, we start off with what looks like a casual game of chess. It's anything but casual as we see quickly that Lieutenant Reed and Ensign Mayweather are not just playing chess, but they are playing it really, really well. And they are playing it ahead of their plays. They move a couple of pieces and then Mayweather looks at the board and says, you're going to beat me in eight moves. Through their conversation, it becomes obvious rather quickly. This is not Reed yeah. and this is not Mayweather. These are two aliens that have taken over these individuals and not only are using them as hosts, but can simultaneously control and direct, but also simply observe based on who these individuals are. So the alien inhabiting Reed refers to, well, I'm going to keep beating you because I'm the best chess player on the ship. It's not that he in and of himself has just decided to beat Mayweather. It's almost like they are playing as Mayweather and Reed. So mm -hmm. But at the same time, Mayweather is able to calculate all the various permutations of all possible moves, and they're talking about it as exponential numbers. So it's rather, a, this immediately, it feels very sci-fi. I was going to say, this, this cold open for the show is probably one of my favorite cold opens they've ever had. Yeah. It was, to me, pitch freaking perfect. It looks like a mundane scene. And within like five seconds, you know, something's off like immediately. Cause one of them does this calculate crazy calculation of math. Yeah. Just like that. And it's like, whoa, no, yeah. Mayweather is not some kind of crazy savant. It's like something's off. Yeah. And as the conversation keeps going, it very quickly unravels. And then one of them saying like, somebody always dies is yeah. one of the last things they say. It's like, as a viewer, I'm like, oh snap, this is awesome. Yeah. It's like, I was just like in it. It was so well done. Right up until... Mayweather gives the possible number of 
of the possible number of moves yeah. in any given game right up until that point. Yeah. It just seems like two friends like playing yeah. chess and Mayweather's yeah. ability to look down and say, you're going to beat me in eight moves seems within the realm of possibilities. It does seem Maybe, within yes. like, okay, Mayweather might be able to say like, oh, I think in eight moves he's going to get me. But the moment he spits out that number, it's like, this is not Mayweather. And this is not there's also a There's also a very subtle difference in their performances, which yes. I was very impressed by. Yes. That it was the the tone of their voice was they had shifted it a little softer, maybe a little higher. Something There was something about the way they were presenting themselves that felt off even yeah. before they said anything. So it's like it's the acting here was also helping to sell this cold open. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to I wanted to say I think that the director, Mike Vijar, possibly was able to work with all of the actors in this. And this is a bottle episode. And yeah. when we talk about bottle episodes, we are, of course, talking about an episode where in order to limit costs, they use only existing sets and they only use regular actors. It's a way of cutting down on costs. And what we're looking at here is this is a second bottle episode. The previous episode was also a bottle episode, the Daedalus effect, where they did have some guest stars in that one, but it all took place on the ship. And we will see in our next episode, the reason why we're coming up into a more, a more special effect, heavy episode coming up. So by saving mm -hmm. costs here, they're able to use it there. Very often battle ep bottle episodes are weaker in comparison. Sometimes it feels like you become aware of one. the kind of claustrophobic attitude of yeah. like, well, this is so limited and there's the story doesn't seem to have much in the sense of, of, of an expanded universe around it. This one does a bottle episode just about as well as you can do a bottle episode. It, it was really feels well right out of the gate. There, there's two things going on in this one. I think the directing and the acting are top, top notch. This is also one of those rare cases for enterprise where they're hearkening back to the original series in the way they do. We're already talking about them as the Organians. That's revealed at the very end. I think there's a reason why it's revealed at the end, both storytelling wise and fandom wise. I think there are reasons why they why they do that. But the fact that this is referencing back to the original series works in this case. I've had difficulties in previous episodes where there's a little too much fan service. Like, mm -hmm. oh, here come the Ferengi and nobody on the ship ever really sees a Ferengi or identifies them as Ferengi so that we, the viewer, know more than the people on the ship. And it's just like, yeah. I, I don't necessarily like that. I don't think it's necessary and I don't think it's serving the role that they think it does very often when it happens. But this is the exception because it's so well done. It is referencing back to the original series. It's referencing back to a wider Trek universe in a way that makes perfect sense. These aliens, the Oregonians, are using a terrible scenario in order to observe various alien races to determine which one of them are worth creating first contact with. It's interesting that they're talking about it being a measure of reasonableness and rationality when they're talking about spacefaring aliens. They're not looking mm -hmm. at, oh, they've built warp drives. They travel in space. They left their home planet. None of that is enough. It has to be, oh, they've demonstrated a level of reasonable and rational thinking, which means that they are on the path to, it's not about warp drive. It's about incorporeality. So it's a whole other level of yep. prime directive. 
And so we're seeing a terrible scenario being used as the measure of rationality, which is watching people get sick and seeing how they respond. It is the equivalent of dropping nail polish into a rabbit's eyes. This is the kind of testing that they're doing. And yeah. it is as we are watching them do this, the cold nature of the performances, the detached nature of the performances is consistent as these entities move from crew member to crew member. And I think that consistency speaks of the director's involvement in getting yeah, everybody on that kind of passive stance of, I'm really just kind of curious, like what's happened to you as you suffer? How does that feel? It's this, and it's done with a comedic touch, which yes. does a nice job of offsetting the torturous element of what they're really doing. Did you find that that balance worked for you? Yeah, no, the, the hu it's very dark humor. Yeah. Um, and it works extremely well. It feels a little bit like a Twilight Zone episode a little bit. Yes. Like, what the hell is happening here? It's frightening and funny at the same time. And I, I do like that you're talking about when you brought up the bottle episodes. For me, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek of all time, any series is the measure of a man from the next generation where data is put on trial for does he have sentience? Is he a living creature? Does he deserve the same rights as other humans? And Picard acts as his, his advocate. It's one of my favorite episodes. That's about all episode. And like, to me, that is like one of the best episodes period. And it happens to be a bottle episode. I don't put this one on that level, but this one is so well executed. Mm -hmm. It is one of my favorite episodes of enterprise hands down. And part of that is the, like you just mentioned how Mike Vijar with the directing and the writing, the two Organians, Organians, they were clear, they had clear personalities. Like yeah. there was the one that is very rigid. He's been doing this forever. You know, we've been doing this for 10,000 years. There are protocols we're supposed to follow. He's by the book. And then you've got the new guy and that's coming up going, this seems screwy, man. What yeah. are we doing? We're like watching them. what is going on? And he keeps questioning things. And over the course of the episode, he gets to the point where he's like enough already. And yeah. it was great to see that happen throughout the entire thing. And it was very, no matter whose body it was, whether it was the captain or T'Pol or Reed and Mayweather or the doctor, whoever it was, that always was crystal clear in the performance. You knew which was and which. Yeah. You knew who was who. And because these two characters, these two aliens were so divergent in their viewpoints, it made it, it was very, what I'm trying to get at is it's very clever writing. Because yes. they did that to make it as contrasty as possible. So you would never confuse the two. Yes. And it was so well executed. And the the moments like where the doctor and T'Pol, like when it was in the chamber was Trip and uh, Yoshi, yeah. Yoshi. And they were having this kind of conversation to each other. And then suddenly they turn and in the window is the doctor Super and creepy. just yeah. standing there creepy watching them. And they're yeah. like, whoa. What, what's going on here? And they just start asking them really odd questions of like, so how do you feel? Yeah. Like really kind of weird questions. It, it was funny. Like yeah. you laugh out loud because it's so awkward and it does a great job of creating that kind of little bit of a horror tension and then breaking it with that humor. Yeah. So I, for me personally, I, I thought the writing in this episode, I even had a note and as I was watching it of the writing could not have been better in this episode. It was so well done. I completely agree. It's, it's a fine line where it keeps you grounded in Trek as Trek because yes. it has those like horror pop 
humor. Yeah. Like it's that yeah. it goes back and forth between those two. So it keeps you centered in Trek. You never feel like you're drifting too far one way or another. This episode, yep. you mentioned Twilight Zone. I thought this was a perfect mashup between Andromeda Strain and The Outer Limits. Where even it's just Andromeda Strain. Yeah, it's just it's just a perfect marriage of those. And they've talked yes. about the Andromeda Strain. And that's the other side of this episode that I wanted to talk about. This is right. where I mentioned the sciency aspects of this that really got me. The idea that it's a silicone life form infection, I thought was fascinating. This is, and they refer to the Andromeda strain, which is the potential world changing outbreak of a disease from a lab and the attempts by the scientists within to understand what is causing the outbreak and what might happen and how to stop it. And it's a great hard sci-fi movie written by Michael Crichton and it ages beautifully considering it, it is like made 50 years ago. Feels like it's about the pandemic. I mean, just yeah, it like does. absolutely like it, it is very, very contemporary. So I strongly encourage anybody who hasn't checked it out to check it out. This episode references the movie almost like a little wink at the audience, like see what we're doing here because it's about mm -hmm. the containment of this disease. I loved, this is the best use of Hoshi since the first season. This and makes like, me angry, Sean. I'm like, this makes yeah, me so they angry. had such a good character. They had such a, they had a backstory for this character that they never revealed until now season four, they reveal, Oh, she had previously been kicked out of Starfleet because of having broken the arm of a superior because she had a floating poker game going because she had read the rules and the rules prohibited gambling while on duty. So she created a game which would float and be only off duty time. And when she was caught and broke the arm of the superior, she ended up getting kicked out, but she was saved by the fact that Starfleet didn't have enough translators and she is a genius at it. So she got back in and that's how she ended up on enterprise. That backstory had been sitting on somebody's awesome. shelf for four years and we'd never seen it until my this moment. Sean, like Sean, my favorite part about all of the, like, it wasn't like one sequence where she dropped all that. Yeah. They kept going back to them in the decon chamber multiple times. Each time they were revealing another layer of Hoshi, yeah. another layer, another layer. And it was like, I was falling in love with her as a character, yeah. the yeah. further in they got. And they were like, why were they holding on to this for so long? Yeah. This was amazing. And on top of which, at the end of the sequence where, you know, like of the previous season where they're trying to disarm the bomb and they have to get her on board because yeah. she is not only good at language, she's good at computers and she can crack codes. Yes. They brought that up again they in brought this it back. one. Yeah. And I love the fact like she busts out of the room with no problem. And yeah. she's just they can't, she's like the Borg as like they're, she's going through the ship. They have no way to stop her because yeah. she keeps cracking every code that they're it's throwing in front of her sequence. and they have to cut the power. Yeah. And they even make a joke about of like, well, apparently Yoshi can break through all of our codes. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know what we're going to do here. We got to knock her out because we can't keep her awake because she's dangerous. I just, I just love the fact that she's this kind of like wild cannon of a character that they never used. It was, yeah. It's such a waste. Why did they not use her more effectively throughout the series? Because in this one episode, they created somebody I want to know more about. Yeah, I think there was a 
a real dilemma in the writing room for the first three years with, yeah. they had experience with creating very sophisticated characters because at this point, this is post Voyager DS nine Star Trek next generation. There are people in those writing rooms, the producers involved in the show, they know how to construct a character from top to bottom with a lot of unseen backstory so that they can mine it. And I think that with a character like this, the details of what she had done may not have ever been conceived until this episode was written, but enough information, enough framework had been put in place to allow for this. Yeah. And they did it with, with everybody on the show. And unfortunately they seem to have mined from those backstories a little bit initially, but never got really deep into it in effective ways. We've seen Hoshi before on her own in the story where she's on the planet with the telepath, where the alien is creating this artificial reality around her in an attempt to basically a beauty and the beast story of like, stay with me, remain with me so that we can, um, be happy together. It fell flat because it was about like his story. It wasn't about hers. It's not mining her. So every time we've seen her on screen, we've seen her in reaction to what's going on right in front of them, or we've seen her in response to other people's stories here. We just see, and it's beautifully woven in. This isn't about her. It is just information provided within the context of the story. We keep going back and we're not only finding out information about her, but we're finding out about trip as well. But trip is so much more familiar to us. His revelations don't strike me as being all that new trip reveals. Oh, when I was a kid, I took all the screws out of the dining room table right before a big holiday meal. It's a funny anecdote, but it doesn't tell us anything about trip that we didn't already know. We've already known he has this affinity for engineering. We already know who he is, but to get this information from her and then to see her in her fever dream, speaking every conceivable language, getting up and cracking the code and trips comment the the humor again the dark humor of this everybody knows if they get out of decon they are going to Game over they are going to infect the ship so the fact that she's speaking in klingon and hitting the buttons and he's like you're not going to crack the code of that door boop and then she's out and he's just kind of like too tired to stand up it's yeah. a beautiful moment of tension of like He's in hot pursuit, but it's two people with such high fevers. They can barely function. She's staggering around without any idea where she is. And he in hot pursuit takes a good two minutes to get to her. He knows he has to stop her, but he can't, he can't do it. That level of use of the two characters is fantastic. It's terrific. Well, also the fact that trip is kind of our surrogate in those moments because he's shocked at the yeah. information that's being revealed. And I love when she says, I got kicked out. And there's this long pause because she turns and she's doing something. He Beautiful goes, line. Well, you can't stop there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Beautiful he's just line. like, no, please. It's like, it's like the fact that her colleagues don't even know some of these in- intimate moments of her past. Yeah. Because it seems like she's hiding it. But now because she's so sick and they might die, she's kind of willing to un- like reveal some of this to somebody because she there's the fear of death. Yeah. So it's like, it makes sense why she's talking about it now and hasn't talked about it before. Like everything about the writing and the explanations of why this stuff is happening now and didn't happen before. It's like, I cannot applaud the writing of this episode yeah. any more than I possibly can. 
And we see the Organians having their their growing schism between the two of them, the, the differing viewpoints and the idea yep. that like we need to stand back. I, this is another element of the fan service callbacks that I think works beautifully as opposed to other episodes where maybe it feels a little too like you don't need to keep giving you don't need to keep giving me sweets. You need to give me something that's a little meatier. The references in this one feel like the meatier version of that, where they refer to, well, remember what happened when the Klingons were here? Remember when the Cardassians yeah. were here? They're referring to other species being at this planet and the problems that they incorporated were the same, but the responses were wildly different. The Klingons blew up their own ship. The Cardassians killed their infected members. So it was a variety of responses from the different species in the sector, some of whom the Enterprise crew would know of, others that they wouldn't. But we as the fans know them. We know the personalities involved in those species, and we understand the references. We get how it's speaking of the larger universe. It is not there for gimmicky reasons. It's there because these aliens are revealing something about themselves that they are willing to let people die again and again and again in order to simply test for rationality. And finally it reaches the head when we have the debate with the captain where the two of them inhabit the dead bodies at the end, mm -hmm. both Hoshi and trip pass from the infection. The doctor has figured out a solution to cure the ailment, but the one alien that is, the one Organian that is the older of the two, the more experienced of the two says, even though he's solved it, only 2% actually get it in time. And the treatment fails. And Hoshi dies before she goes under the treatment. And then Trip dies after. And during that attempt to save the two of them, the captain has to expose himself to the disease so that it, they can actually conduct the medical experiment. So he is now hours away from passing. And then the two Organians inhabit the bodies of the dead crewmen and reveal themselves as present on the ship. And they have a philosophical debate. This feels so much like Star Trek. It's mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. There's a moment where Archer starts to sound a little Kirk-like. And yep. you've forgotten what it means to have compassion, to have empathy. And if this is what it means to be a higher life form, you can keep it. And it's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful speech. And through the episode, these Organians have revealed the fact that they can not only inhabit, but they can alter memory. They make a passing comment about altering memory being a trivial thing. It's, it's a very funny offhand, like, Hey, it's no big deal to yeah. alter memory. Well, on, on that point, can I just make one comment? I had a yeah. note for myself. Like there was a point, the writing felt like it was one step ahead of me because yeah. every time I had a thought of like, well, why is that Oh, like, like almost immediately after I would have that question in my head, they would answer it. Yeah. And one of them was, wait, if they're jumping around like this, aren't people having like missing time? And then literally 60, I wrote that comment down of like, how would the, 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 how would they not suffer a loss of time? And then literally 60 seconds later, one of them made the offhand comment of like, oh, we can manipulate memory. It's no big deal. And I was like, okay, glad yeah. they answered that. And they yeah. answered it like literally right after I had that question. Yeah. So it's like, I'd love that they were one step ahead of the, of an audience member to keep me on my toes and I was thinking and I thought, oh, maybe I th just th I thought the episode. Oh, no, I didn't. They thought of that too. So it was like, I just love that, that yeah. there was one step ahead of me. And I, and I love how 
in that moment, Archer's anger yeah. steps up a notch when he says, when he realizes you're going to alter my memory right now, aren't you? Like you're going to take this away from me and I just will have lost two crewmen. Like that's all I'll know. And he's upset about that as well. It takes him up one more step. The final conclusion of this being that these aliens, now the younger, less experienced one does sway the moment and decides like, no, we're not doing this anymore. This is off limits. We can't cross this line anymore. And heals the two crewmen, brings them back from the dead. And the crew is then left with an extreme medical mystery, which is how did these two people survive this thing? They are free of the disease. The doctor cannot figure out how. And ultimately, the conclusion of this, as far as the Enterprise crew is concerned, is they leave a beacon on the planet warning others away from this disease that is that is here. And we see these yep. two aliens talking to one another, and they've now had a bit of a role reversal. The less experienced alien is saying, well, we'll find new ways of studying these people. I have a feeling that we're going to have plenty of opportunities in the future to meet them again. And the more experienced one says, well, based on what we've seen here, we better hurry up because we may only have 5,000 years before we have our first contact situation with them. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice little offhand reference, you know, him thinking that it's 5,000 years away as a fan, the moment they refer to themselves as organians, we know at the end of the episode, they, they drop, we are organians. And we know that that is a species from the original series. There is an episode that focuses on them as the, not the, the antagonist, but a huge element of an episode in the antagonism mm -hmm. between the Federation and Klingons. So there is the upcoming storyline that we know takes place a hundred years from now. It will involve Kirk, obviously in first contact situation with the Organians. How did you feel about the reveal of them as Organians? Cause I know what I thought about it, but I'm curious what you thought. Uh, for me, I, my memory of that episode is very weak. I remember it. And when, as soon as they dropped the name, I was like, oh, okay. But for me, it was one of, I could have done without that. It wasn't necessary. They could have just left that out and it would have been, the episode wouldn't be weaker or stronger without that information. Um, but the way it was revealed didn't feel like it undercut anything. So I didn't feel like it was like when we've talked about the fandom and previous episodes where it's kind of like an eye rolling. Oh, really? It's like, I did not have that reaction at all. Uh, but I had to go look up and refresh my memory on that episode to what the details were. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was like, eh, I kind of like this kind of washed over me. What about you? I thought there was, there were two reasons as to why they gave a name to who they were. Mm -hmm. The first, I think from a storytelling perspective, I think they wanted to leave the audience without a hanging thread. I think they wanted right. there to be a little bit of like, oh yeah, it connects to the larger Trek universe. This is part of the showrunners, Kodo's attempt. We've talked about this now practically every episode in season four, him saying, let's bridge this show with the original series. Let's connect those dots for the audience. So this is very clearly that kind of moment. I think the mm -hmm. second reason 
is if you don't name it, I think fandom would have eaten itself alive trying to figure out who they were. And I think it could have been Q. (laughs) It could have been any other. There are other omniscient, omnipotent alien species that are in various versions of Trek, other aliens that have the ability to mind hop, body hop. And I think that they were trying to put a period at the end of the sentence to keep the fandom from speculating and investing the story with all those other extraneous things. I kept, as I was watching it until the reveal, I had forgotten who they were. And as I was watching it this time, I kept going back to, are they playing with Q here? Is this what they're heading toward? Is, are we going to get a reveal that is going to be there's part of the continuum? And I found myself happily relieved when they revealed, oh, yeah. we're the Organians. And I was just like, aha, that's great. It was like, I ended off with a, that's a great end to this set of aliens and who they are. Mm-hmm. So for me, it worked, it worked beautifully. There's one last thing that I wanted to throw out for us to talk about very briefly, the T'Pol of it all. <laughs> this episode, like the previous one, and like up coming ones still deals with a tiny little echo of what's going on between T'Pol and Trip. And yep. I really, I really liked what they did with that here. There's a very subtle evolution to Jolene Blaylock's portrayal of T'Pol mm-hmm. this season. I think that there were a lot of very conscious choices in season three, showing her getting more emotional, holding on to things with less of a grip. And now she's swinging the other direction and she is seeming more serene than she ever has as a Vulcan in the series. It is much more evocative of what we are familiar with from the original series than it is from season one or season two. I think that the references in the previous episodes that we've just talked about recently about the discovery of the teachings of Surak, the idea that the Vulcan mindset has actually been manipulated and distorted for several centuries and the new discovery of the Kachara is leading to an evolution of Vulcan philosophy. Awakening. She, she is going yeah. through that on the ship. She has been reading it. And I think that it is incorporating a change in her. But in this episode, they refer to the fact that trip is exposed. Trip is dying. Trip is in decon. And there is one brief little moment where Archer is talking to T'Pol after his exposure. And he says, you know, you're in charge now. And she very calmly, like without any kind of emotional response says, I understand. And then he goes on to lay out, don't let them take the ship from you. You need to be captain. You need to do what you can to keep that command. And she says she understands again, no emotional response. And then she asks if trip wakes up and he says, I'll let you know. And she says it without an emotional response. She says it without much. There are tears just barely at the edges of her eyes, but it is a performance of her evolution in Vulcan mindset that I thought was absolutely beautiful. And is no more than a minute of the episode, but stood out to me as being like, this is well done. This is great. It's part of the beauty of when you have time to work on characters in a television show like this, 
you only need shorthand moments like that to have a huge impact. I, it hit me too. I noticed it clearly that she was very detached more than we've seen her in a long time on the show. And it's clearly tied to her reawakening of her Vulcanness from the Katara, Katara and what came out in previous episodes. So it's, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And one thing I do want to also come kind of build on that. I felt a similar thing for flocks because there are times where in previous episodes, like when, um, Brent Spiner had his guest appearance and he made a comment of like, oh, Flox's reputation rivals my own. Yeah. Like little things like that where we know that Dr. Flox is like probably one of the best doctors out there and he's very well regarded. This episode had that for me. Like the fact that there were many moments in the series where in the show where the Organians were saying things like, wow, only 50 something percent of people get to this point. Oh, wow. Only 37% of people get to this point. Yeah. Uh, only 2%. And it was like in most of these moments were after like a decision the captain made or after something flocks had done. Yeah. And so it was like, it shows that th th they really are at the, the cream of the crop. Yeah. And it was just a, a subtle, subtle little moments like that as a fan. You're like, oh yeah, that's my Fox. Yeah. Yeah. More Dr. Fox, please. There was even so a moment. Like, I, just, I enjoyed that. The cherry on top of that was when flocks discovers the presence of the Organians and he has evidence yep. and his evidence, he presents it to the captain and to Paul, and it's, it's the Organians. not realizing it's the Organians <laughs> and their response yeah. is to each other. We didn't know that you had the ability to do this. It must be something denobulant. So he has done something that nobody else has actually been able to do, which is he identifies that there's an alien presence there. He's able to yeah. do brain scans and he, and he identifies the alien presence. So that goes right in line with what you've just described. Like they keep mm -hmm. building a, a mountain peak of more and more, uh, refined thinking. And at the peak of it is flocks who yeah. Archer doesn't discover them. They reveal themselves to Archer flocks is the only one who's just like, Hey, wait a minute, you guys, yeah. you don't belong here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So hats off to Dr. Flocks. So all in all, it sounds like Matt and I are in agreement. This is a top-notch episode. I really, really like this it. one. And I really loved it. At the time it was reviewed with very mixed responses. I I think this is one of those episodes that ages well like a fine wine. It this stands out to me as one of the best of the series that we've watched. And I can say that without hesitation, given we're here almost at the halfway point of season four, the final season of this show. And I'm comparing yeah. it back to all the ones we've seen. And there have been many that I really, really thoroughly enjoyed. There have been many that we've debated about how the episodes could have been fixed. This one, I think just top to bottom just stood out as really, really strong. I agree. And next week we're going to be talking about Babel one, but before we sign off, Matt, is there anything you'd like to talk to our listeners about what do you have coming up on your main channel? Well, at this point, the video that just released this week is about a, a fatal what I'm calling the fatal flaw of a solar of solar panels and that we need to fix it and what can and is being done to try to address that problem. Mm. It's a, it's an interesting exploration that we kind of stumbled upon. We were planning to do one kind of video about what's happening in solar panel technology this year and next year. And we kind of peeled the onion and discovered something that we were like, oh, wow, this is even more interesting. So mm -hmm. we made a video about this fatal flaw. Of Let me guess. Panels. The fatal flaw is that they don't work at night. 
oh, Sean, you figured it out. Oh, and the solution, <laughs> one giant mirror. That's right. It'll be daytime all the time here on Earth. As for me, you can check out my website. You can go to seanfarrell.com or you can go to your local book st- your local bookstore or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, wherever you buy your books, you can look for my books there. And if you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing us on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever it was you found this. Go back there, leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also leave a review and subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to directly support us, you can go to trekintime.show, click on the Become a Supporter button, throw some coins at our heads. The bruises will heal, and more importantly, you will be signed up as an ensign, which means you will start getting our spinoff show, Out of Time. Out of Time is a supporter-only program where we talk about anything that doesn't fit within the confines of this program. So we still talk about Star Trek, but we also talk about Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, horror movies, fantasy, whatever it is that catches our eyes. We will talk sometimes about video games, books, comics, whatever. We hope you'll be interested in checking that out. All of that really helps support the show. Thank you so much again for listening or watching, and we'll talk to you next time.